Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 5 as you turn in there. I want to just make you aware of something that I think you're going to want to know, but there are killers on the loose today. Uh, The problem is that you really can't tell by looking. They don't wear buttons or give away their identity, nor do they carry signs to warn everybody to stay away. On the contrary, a lot of them carry Bibles and appear to be clean-cut, nice-looking, law-abiding citizens. Many of them spend time in churches like this, some even in places of religious leadership. Uh, Many are so respected in their community, their neighbors would never guess that they're living next door to killers. They kill freedom, spontaneity, creativity. They kill joy as well as productivity. They kill with their words and their emails and their looks. They kill with their attitudes far more often than with their behavior. The amazing thing is that they get away with it day in and day out. Without being confronted or exposed, strangely, these same ministries that they are part of would not tolerate heresy for 10 minutes will step aside and allow these killers all the space they need to maneuver and manipulate others in the most insidious manner imaginable. The bondage that results would be criminal were it not so subtle and wrapped in spiritual sounding garb. This day, this very moment, millions who should be free, productive individuals are living in shame, fear, and intimidation. The tragedy is they think that this is the way they should be. They have never known the truth that could set them free. So look at your neighbors carefully. They may be all around you. Uh, They may be seated right behind you. You don't know whether to laugh or not, do you? Like you guys are a little bit on edge. You're curious, you're wondering, you're thinking, I think he's joking. Uh, but, But it's a little unsettling to think about, right? These are actually the opening words to a book by Chuck Swindoll called The Grace Awakening. And it's a book that I read years ago and really shaped my heart and gave me an understanding of this idea of grace and really formed much of kind of, honestly, even who we are as a church. His book and and kind of some of the things we learned, I learned in that book were very instrumental in my own life and and why why we started a church five years ago. And so as we're in this series called Growing Oaks, and we're talking about what kind of church do we want to grow up to be, uh, this seems worthwhile spending a little bit of time here. And one of the reasons is because I don't think there's ever been a time in my lifetime where grace has been more difficult to find. Grace, it seems, is harder and harder to identify in the the day and age in which we live. And so we need to be a people that are all about it. We've been looking at this verse in Colossians, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Any of you have it memorized? Uh, we're supposed to be working on that. So let's, let's keep working on that. Uh, it's okay, but let's keep working on it. But just as you read this verse, this is therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, being rooted in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving. You know, one of the phrases that jumps out there is abounding in thanksgiving. Where does this abounding in thanksgiving come from? Answer, grace. Grace is the thing that causes us to be overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving in our spiritual life. Grace is the non-negotiable, irreducible, absolutely essential element of, that, that wakes us up to the deep, meaningful life in Christ that we're called to live. But grace is, is essential to everything. Have you ever heard the phrase watershed moment? Watershed moment is, is really comes from a, a, a term that has to do with land. And you think about land and there's a ridge line on a, on a mountain pass or on any, any kind of an area, there's a high point or a ridge line that when the rains come down, that it divides the waters and the waters flow in different directions. And that, that watershed is, is what they refer to from that dividing point that funnels the water all in a certain direction, but it becomes the thing that separates the direction in which the waters flow and the direction of the waterfall. Now, there's also another term that really watershed moments in our lives mark dividing points in our lives too. They're the things that, that turn and, and maneuver our lives in one direction or the other. They're the things that determine the trajectory of our lives, that determine where we're going and what we're going to be about. And they're the, the kind of the turning point moments of crisis in our life we refer to as watershed moments. And I want you to understand today that grace is the watershed dividing moment in the Christian life. It's the thing that shapes and molds everything about us in the life, as in the life of, of a Christian. And so if you're not abounding in thanksgiving, and I want to tell you today that the problem there is there must be a shortage of grace in your life. Because if you were full of grace, you would overflow in thanksgiving, because that's the natural response we have. So look with me at, at Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to skip around a little bit today. And I know uh, and as I was studying today, there's so much good stuff here uh, that, that, that we're going to bounce around some and try to kind of give you a, a bigger, broader picture of one of the book of Galatians and some of the things Paul's trying to say, but also just of this idea of grace, kind of a systematic look at this, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll kind of deepen our understanding of really what it means. Galatians chapter 5 begins this way, and verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Grace, the object, in grace, the objective work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, won for us our freedom. That he won for us our forgiveness of sin, but he also won for us uh, much, much more than just forgiveness. And as we think about, uh, when we think about grace, it certainly has to do with the forgiveness of sins, that all those things which we had done, uh, that, that we had done wrong, uh, have been washed white as snow, and we, we somehow have been, uh, been welcomed in through the redemption, the payment uh, that, our, that our debt was paid by Christ, and so we are forgiven. That's certainly a part of grace. But you know, when you, look at, when you look at the totality of the scriptures, grace is even more than just the forgiveness of your sins. It's not just God, it, it goes even beyond God saying, you've done bad and let me pay the penalty for that so that you can experience free. It also is new life. It's adoption. It's connection to the presence of God. It's the, the, the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us. It's freedom from sin, from the power of sin, and freedom to live as a child of the King. 
But you know, there's a danger that's here also. It says, stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So the, Christ has died to make us free, but there's a danger that somehow we can go backwards. We, we can go backwards away from our freedom, back into slavery. This freedom can be lost, it says. And so it says, stand firm, meaning you have to protect this freedom. There, there's something that, uh, there's a call not to yield, a call not to surrender, a call not to submit to the old way of doing things but to stand firm in the freedom that Christ won for you. See, compromise can be a good thing in a lot of settings. Uh, any of you spouses can agree with that? Uh, compromise can, can definitely be a good thing. And on Mother's Day, uh, fathers, can I just encourage you? I just compromise an awful lot today. Like if she wants it, she probably gets it today. That's just the way it works. Compromise is a good thing, but kids, compromise today with your mom. Maybe if your mom wants something, don't, don't balk or push back. Compromise and move towards her today. But there are some things we can't compromise on. One of them is grace. And what Paul says is we can't compromise in the matter of grace. The, the grace is really one of the dividing lines in the Christian faith that separates and funnels things in a different direction. So we have to hold tightly to the gospel of grace. Galatians 1, if you go back to the beginning of the book, and you don't need to look there, but just as I read, Paul writes, and this kind of, it culminates in 5 and 6, where you kind of see the fullness of this issue. But beginning in chapter 1, you see where Paul writes, says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. See, there's only one gospel, and it's the gospel of grace through Christ. And there is no other gospel. It's a dividing line through which, everything, through, through which everything else funnels. And so if we don't get this right, uh, there is no way for us to hold fast to Christ. And so he says, you're desert, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. That's the issue that Paul's addressing in the book of Galatians. You get to Galatians 2, and Paul confronts his, his friend and his fellow leader, Peter, now, this is pretty remarkable. It says also here that Barnabas also went astray. And he confronts his, his friend and, and a spiritual leader that all through the book of Acts, the guy who preaches the first big sermon has 3,000 people come forward and trust the Lord and get baptized. That guy that, that, that really launched the church in the book of Acts, Paul has to confront and says, I mean, you're no longer walking in step with the gospel of grace. Peter, you've gotten off course. And not only that, but you've led Barnabas off course and you've led others off course. And there's something that, that, that you're no longer in line with grace in the way that you're living. So what is it that Peter had done that was so awful that Paul had to confront him? Any of you like to be confronted? Any of you like to have someone and say, hey, I need to talk to you about an issue in your life. No one I know likes that. How would you like to be confronted and then have it recorded in the scriptures for all peoples to read for all times going forward. Uh, that's pretty tough, right? And so this is what Peter has done. What was it that Peter did that was so awful? Had Peter murdered someone? Had he committed adultery? Had he robbed a bank? Had he, had he gotten hooked on drugs? What, what was the thing that was, so, that was so painful that Paul said, I've got to intercede here and I'm going to name names and I'm going to call him out. Verse 12 says that Peter had that Peter drew back and separated himself from people, some people in the church. This is the great evil that he did. 
that he allowed himself to be to withdraw from some because he wanted to distinguish himself from others. And so there's a sense in which he pulled back and became really a grace killer. So he no longer lived in the flourishing of the grace of the community where everyone is invited in, where, as Paul says, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Greek nor Jew, but all peoples are together, united in this thing of grace because of the love of God, and we're together. And Paul, Peter pulled back from that and separated from some. And it says as he separated himself, that, Peter, that, that that's what Paul felt like he needed to address. Now, Peter's actions really were divided over, were dividing people over secondary matters. There were religious commitments and social ways of operating and, uh, in terms of what they ate and in terms of some of the religious practices they did. And those were steeped in Judaism. And what happened was Peter had been free and walking in the freedom of his grace that God had won for him and enjoying that. And then another group came. It says the circumcision party. Uh, these, these guys, they always come in gangs. I always come in groups. Like, I don't know if they had like a grace killer tattoo or like some secret handshake, but it says the circumcision party came from Jerusalem and they showed up and all of a sudden Peter begins to operate differently. Now, what's interesting to me is it actually gives us the reason why Peter withdrew. It says because he was afraid. And isn't that fascinating? That this guy who was known for his boldness, this guy that, that, that became this kind of radical preacher and this guy that always had the strength about him is afraid of this other group of people and the perception of what they, uh, how they are gonna view him. And so it says he shrunk back in fear. And how do we, how do we get out of step with grace? As Peter did. I think oftentimes it happens through our emotions. It happens through our circumstances. It happens through our attitudes about life that rarely is that a theological shift, but almost always it's something else swirling around us and something swirling inside us that begins to bubble out and push us in a different direction so that we begin to move back away from the freedom we have underneath the slavery of the old way of doing things. I wanna point out to you just some of the ways in which I think we, were reasons why we let go of grace living. One is control. Grace feels too risky. We say, what if I don't get the result I want? What if, what if I can't make the thing happen that I wanna see happen? It just feels too risky, so we pull back. Another is pride. Grace feels too insulting. Why do I need their pity? I can stand on my own two feet, thank you very much. So it's hard to depend on grace. Another one is hurt or pain. Grace feels vulnerable. What if I'm not really safe with them? What if I put myself at risk for further injury? Another is anger. Grace feels unfair. What if I don't get what I deserve? I've worked hard for this. I deserve this. If I depend on grace, what if I don't get what's coming to me? Another is vengefulness. Grace feels ridiculous. What if I don't get the retribution I want? Fear. Grace feels threatening. What if I get left out? I think that's what Peter was thinking. This group of power players was coming in and he thinks, man, I know they've got these preferences. I know they've got these opinions, this way of thinking, this way of living, this way of doing things. What if I get left? What if they reject me and I get left out because I hang out with all of these other people? 
And so there's a fear that compels Peter. Doubt is another one. Grace feels uncertain. What if all this doesn't really pay off? What if it doesn't work? Success. Grace feels unnecessary. What if we're just happy to live without it? Man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty happy. And so these are things I think that cause us to distance ourselves from grace, from grace living, because we, we, uh, we experience all these other things. So what happens? If those are things that lead us into grace, what are the results or the outcomes whenever we walk away from grace? Really what you see throughout this passage is that our relationships dissolve. In verse 15, it says, but if you do, uh, just says, brothers, you are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled with the one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning don't shrink back from some people as though you're better than they are, but stay together. And he tells us the result in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He goes on, and creates a list of ways in which these things sometimes work themselves out. He says, sometimes it's an enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, contentions, divisions, envy. See, our vertical grace is connected, our vertical grace with God or from God is connected to a horizontal grace with one another. That somehow when we receive grace from the Lord, that's meant for us to give grace to each other that just as he has received us, we also receive those around us because of his grace. But absence of grace always separates. Absence of grace always creates separation between peoples. And when we let go of grace as our guiding principle, we always say no to someone else. There's a great picture or a story of this that, uh, that Swindoll tells in this book. And it's the story of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, it sounds like they were living in a day where it was about as rainy as it's been here over the last few weeks. And so the, the river waters were rising and on horseback, they were coming to the edge of, uh, edge of a river. And as they, they did, and, and Thomas Jefferson, the president uh, with his whole entourage and as well as just some other pe- townspeople and others that were there needed to get across this river. And it was at great risk. And so some were swimming and they were trying to, trying to make their way across this river, but it was really treacherous. And as these guys were getting on the horses and going across, one of the gentlemen from the town came up and asked Thomas Jefferson if he would take him across to the other side. And he immediately said yes and put him on horseback along with him and began the, the journey across the, the river as the waters raged. And as they reached the other side, they came back out on the other side. One of the other guys came up to uh, this gentleman and said, sir, why did you feel so free to ask the president for a ride across the river? And he said, oh, I did not have any idea that he was the president. Uh, he did not realize who he was at all. He said, but what I did know was many of you had no faces, but his face said yes. Somehow when he looked at him, there was something in his demeanor that said yes. And so he was the one he approached. And don't you want people in your life that have yes faces, not no faces? Don't you want to have a yes face? That when people look at you, that they just have a sense that you're for them, that you care about them, that you're going to, that you're going to serve them and to do what is needed um, for their, on their behalf. See, freedom and grace give us a yes face. 
Grace always transforms who we are and changes our character, changes our attitudes, changes us from the inside out so that our demeanor itself begins to look different. Now, it's interesting. If grace really truly gives us freedom from our bad memories, from our emotions, from our worries, from our, our fear of others as it should, don't you think church should be the freest, most joyful place on earth? So let me ask you a question. Is that the stereotype if you go to the office and say, what do you think about churches? Do most people immediately go, oh, that's where all the happy people are walking in freedom. <laughs> that's, just, that's not the stereotype of the way, sorry about that. Uh, that's not the stereotype that we have often about what Christians look like and what churches look like. Oftentimes it's something different. What we see is the tragedy is that church really is a battleground for freedom. In Galatians 2, Paul, another, another area, he talks about those who, it says some who, there were some who sneaked in to spy out our liberty with which, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us back into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Do you hear the battle language that's there? He says there's people that are sneaking in in order to spy out the freedom that you have in Christ and they're seeking in order to bring you back into bondage so that you don't experience the freedom you had. But Paul says, we did not yield even for an hour, that we stood our ground and stood firm. This is warfare that Paul is talking about. Why? So that the gospel, the truth of the gospel of grace might remain with you. Meaning we're not bending on this and we're not going to give up. See, it's interesting that in Scripture, you see this continual thing of people coming, trying to press them back into a mold that Christ freed them from. But we also know it from our own experience, don't we? We know what it's like to have someone kind of look at us with that look that says, they're not really approving of me. They're not really okay with what they heard about my background. And we, we all walk in with some places where we've got these, these shame and this, or this shame and this guilt and these things that we, that we bury and Christ wants to free us from it. But sometimes we come in and we get in the midst of other Christians and instead we feel more pressed down by it. We feel more confined by it rather than freed by it. It's because there's a battleground going on and something that we lose. It's people that want to restrict us, people that, that want to manage other people's behavior, manage other people's preferences. They want to be in charge. They, they, want to, they want to keep spontaneity and joy and creativity and freedom from flourishing. As, as God's children run free, they want to make sure that everything is in line according to their own way of doing things. And man, that's just, that, that's a grace killer at work. It's a grace destroyer at work. Oftentimes there's issues of comparison. How do I measure up to them or how do they measure up to me? Do they, does this group feel like my last group? Are they as good as the last, is that other, that other place over there? Sometimes there's competition. Oftentimes there's control. There's a sense of belittling in the sense of, of looking down upon those. Now, sadly, oftentimes the people that are, that are most, uh, most effective at grace killers are also inside, inside themselves. They're the ones that are most insecure. They're the ones that are most afraid. 
They're the ones that are most, have the hardest time trusting grace for themselves. And so they become stuck with their own unhappiness, their own bitterness, their own worry, their own fear, their own shame. And because they're stuck in that place, it gives them a no face that's on display. And if we're not careful, a church or group or a family can become so concerned about the grace killers that they lose the good news of the gospel of grace for themselves. And we begin to wander around kind of worried about what everyone else is thinking all the time and whether we're going to be okay or not. And so we, we begin to have anxiety and, and fear about interacting with other people because that's the effect that grace killers have. Now, if we're honest, this battle doesn't just happen in churches. This battle actually happens in our own hearts too, doesn't it? Because all of us know what it's like to doubt grace. It's sometimes hard to trust grace. It's hard to live by grace. It's hard to walk by grace. It's hard to accept grace for yourself to such an extent that it transforms even the face and the demeanor and the attitudes and the emotions and the memories and all the things in your life begin to, to be re, uh, rearranged by grace so that you can act in grace towards others. You know, I know it's, easy to, or it's, it's hard to live by grace. I'm married. And, and there's just times when I don't do what I ought to do towards my spouse. When she does something wrong, rarely, not very often, but occasionally. And I don't respond in grace. I respond in, by somehow drawing a line. And oftentimes when I do that, it creates separation. And we have to reconcile and move back in and begin to make those right. You know, there's, families are great uh, kind of petri dishes for learning how to work out this thing of grace uh, because we all have our own issues and we all have to do this battle in our heart as well. But everyone I know wants to be a yes-faced person, but it's hard to live with a yes-faced all the time. Some of you grew up in homes where you had a parent that, was, that had a no-face. Some of you work for someone that has a no-face. Some of you went to a church that had a pastor with a no face. Some of you have a coach that had a no face or a boss. But there's an opportunity. And the good news here is that God, through the grace of Christ, can give us a yes face. Grace can give you a yes face. Galatians 4, going back just a little bit. Galatians 4, starting in verse 3, says, In the same way also, when we were children, we... Um, in the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, grace, is, grace is, is to bend or to stoop down. It's God bending down to us and taking us like a little child and inviting us in to his family. Grace is meant to be the freedom of a child running, running wild in, its, in his own home, enjoying the blessing and the goodness and the provision of all of his family. Grace is meant to be like that. 
And God says, I'm inviting you in and, and you're no longer a slave that needs to walk in fear, but you're a son and you're an heir, meaning all that I have is yours and I'm withholding nothing from you. You've got all the freedom of a child running through the house of a good father. It's a beautiful thing. Grace is unearned. Grace is, is undeserved acceptance. Grace, because of that, is unexpected because it's so radically different from our world. Grace is totally free. Grace is no strings attached. Grace is not holding anything back, but giving you everything with, well, while expecting nothing. It's simply given because of the love of the giver. Through Christ, we have that kind of grace and grace is always free. Can I give you a picture that I think gives, uh, kind of captures this really well? In the Old Testament, there's a story and I was, my, my daughter was asking me this week what I was preaching about and I said, Mephibosheth. And she said, Mahu? And I said, Mephibosheth. And she said, Mephibosheth. You know, she, we never quite got there, but we broke it down, eventually got there. But I, I want to tell you a little of the story of Mephibosheth. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament and really gives us a picture of grace. And really the story, it goes back to the time of King David. And King David, uh, you, you may, if you know your Old Testament, may know that the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. And Saul was a man who looked like all the other kings of the land and was a foot taller than everyone else. And because of his stature, because of his appearance and his strength, they wanted him as king. And yet God said, I've rejected Saul as king. And he went and began to look for who would be the next king of God's people. And as he did, he goes and goes to a man named Jesse and says, bring me your sons. And Jesse brings his sons. And uh, the prophet says, nope, none of them. Do you have any other sons? And he's like, I've got a runt of a kid that's kind of in the back 40 somewhere with the animals. And he's like, well, bring me that one. And they bring him and he says, this is the one that will be king. And so undeserved, unexpected, David finds himself anointed as king, yet Saul is still physically king, so David's waiting. And while he's waiting, Saul is trying to kill David because David begins to rise in stature. He begins to, David kills Goliath. David defends them against the Philistines. David does all these great works. And so there's this animosity. And as kings happen during that day, uh, the Game of Thrones ain't got nothing on, on the way kingdoms uh, tend to work because in that day, if a king was, had a rival, they tended to start hurling spears. And twice the scriptures tell us that Saul hurled a spear at David in order to kill him. And so David had to run and hide. Saul had a son named Jonathan who was a friend of David. David and Jonathan kind of worked up a deal and Jonathan said, look, I believe that God anointed you to be king. And so I'm gonna trust that you uh, truly are the king, even though in, in, in the world's eyes, I should be the rightful heir of the throne behind my father, Saul. I'm going to defer my rights and, and I'm gonna serve you and care for you, John, uh, David, and, and I will look out for you. And so they struck up a deal and, and Jonathan said, I will protect you from my father and I will warn you if he ever comes for you. But the one thing I would ask is that, that you would take care of my family and any of mine that are left behind when they're done, when I'm gone. Later, becomes a battle. Saul and David, I mean, Saul and Jonathan both are killed. And after they're killed, uh, you see this little passage that talks about this one named Mephibosheth. And 2 Samuel chapter four says, now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan's death came to Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in a hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
So this little child who was five in the midst of this battle, his nurse picks him up to run out and falls. And as she falls, he then becomes lame in both feet. And Mephibosheth disappears for 15 to 20 years. David eventually takes the throne. As David rises in power, the nation really has prosperity and peace and strength that it's never had before. And so David's at a really good place. And David, this, this little uh, runt of a child that was out in the back 40 has now emerged and become this powerful world ruler in, in the nation of, uh, of Israel. And in his security, he just looks back and you can almost sense that he's relishing in the grace that he has been given. And now the privilege he has as a king, he looks back and says, and just asks of his servants one day, he says, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word for kindness there could be translated grace. Is there anyone left that I could show grace? Not because they deserve it, but for Jonathan's sake. Because my buddy, I made a commitment to him that I would watch out for him and for his. And, and because of his, what he did for me and because of my covenant promise to him, I'm going to look out and see if there's anyone out there. A man comes forward whose name was Ziva. He was a servant in the house of Saul. And it says um, that this one named servant came to David and said to him, uh, and David said, ask him, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziva said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan who's crippled in both feet. Now, if you know more of the story of Ziba, uh, Ziba becomes kind of a negative character through the whole thing. But can you almost feel Ziba's no face? Yeah. Just in that little statement? David's got this, David's got this, this commitment. It says, is there anyone left that I can show, show the kindness of God to? And Ziba says, yeah, there's a cripple that is a long ways from here. And it turns out, he was living in a place called Lodabar, which is a wasteland. And so this child of, this crippled son of Jonathan living in a wasteland far away. David then sends, and says that King David sent and brought Mephibosheth to the house, uh, from the house of Machir and the son of Amiel in Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here's your servant, Mephibosheth's afraid, as a son of a rival king in that day likely would have been. He's afraid that a spear is coming his way. And so he falls down and says, I'm your slave. And David says, do not fear, for I will surely show you the kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my own table with me. I mean, do you see the mercy that's there? In the midst of Ziba's no face, yeah, there's one son and he's a cripple. David shows up with a yes face and says, I'm gonna restore to you all that is yours. You're gonna sit at my table. You're gonna be as a child of the king with all the rights of the kingdom. So no face and a yes face, both on display. And when I think of Ziba, I just think that's so often the way we look at others in a world, the way that the, that, the, that the people of our world look at one another. He, he looks at what Jonathan can contribute. He looks at Jonathan's weakness. And so often a, a no-faced person, I mean, they've got a list of all the places we've blown it. They've got a list of all the things we've done wrong. 
They've got a list of all the, the places where we don't measure up. They've got a list of all the places where we've fallen short, where we've betrayed, where we've wandered, where we've done wrong. All the places where we're not enough. That's what Zeba does. He defines someone by what his weaknesses or limitations are. David doesn't see him for, who he, for, for what he can contribute or what he brings to the table. David says, for Jonathan's sake, I'm offering you the kindness of God and, and all the blessings of the kingdom. Friends, does that sound like anyone else you know? Does it sound like Jesus? That for the sake of Jesus, our Heavenly Father welcomes us in. As his children, he adopts us. He makes us his own and says that you have rights of a child of the king and you have all the rights of an heir. You're not a slave. Do you know the, the, the command that Jesus gives more than any other is fear not. Friends, fear not. You're not a slave. You're a child invited in. That's grace. For the sake of Jesus, we get to experience the kindness of God and all the blessings that come with it. Friends, let me ask you this. What if we lived every day in grace? What if we refused to be a grace killer but became, grace, became those that, that were defined by grace and lived by grace? What if, what, if we refu- uh, what if we asked God for a yes face? What if we came and just said, God, would you transform me and give me a yes face that, that just offers grace to those by my very presence? What if we began every day saying, is there anyone here to whom I may show kindness for Jesus' sake? And if you turn that, that phrase around and, and really make it for us, it's no longer for Jonathan's sake, but it's for Jesus' sake. What if, what if every time we walked into this building on a Sunday, our heads were on a swivel and we were walking in with this kind of excitement to say, what, say is there anyone left to whom I can show kindness for Jesus' sake? What if when we did meet and greet, you looked around and went, and is there anyone here that I could show kindness for Jesus' sake? What if you went to the office tomorrow and just said, is there anyone here that I could show kindness and show the grace of God to for Jesus' sake? What if we came home from work and back into our houses and said, is there anyone here that I could show grace to for Jesus' sake? Man, would that not transform everything about your life? To me, that's the the call of the scriptures and what it is that we're invited into. Friends, let's let's not be grace killers. Let's be grace livers. Let's see those who walk in freedom, those who rejoice in all of the blessings that God gave to us. Let's not be those who measure up one another and dissect one another and kind of distance ourselves from one another if things don't go just perfect. But let's be those who constantly move in towards one another by grace and offer horizontally the grace that we receive vertically from our Heavenly Father. We pray for us. Father, your word says, Christ has set us free to live a free life. Would you help us to take our stand? Never again to let anyone put a harness of slavery on us, but to walk in the freedom of your grace. Father, would you help us to love one another as we've been loved? For Jesus' sake. Amen.